Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Raph Peck, CEO of Brixton, which started nearly 20 years ago in Southern California with a focus on hats. Raph joined the company in 2019 after formerly serving as president of Fanatics and holding leadership roles at Under Armour and Oakley, among others. He's since taken Brixton through a rebrand and heavily invested in expanding its physical footprint. I wanted to ask Raph about the challenges of joining the company just ahead of the pandemic and about the brand's expansion far beyond headwear. What categories are next? Welcome, Raph. Thank you for having me, Joe. Fantastic to be here. Happy to have you. So tell me about the leap from Fanatics to Brixton. What, what was the motivation? I mean, I think at the end of the day, the real question is it's the leap from everything to Brixton. Brixton is something that in some ways is smaller than most of the challenges I've taken on in my career, but much more complex, uh, a much narrower consumer focus, a underdeveloped direct-to-consumer channel, both in physical retail and in e-com, and a diverse product set with headwear being nearly half of all of our revenue. Uh, So a really interesting challenge to take something that is generally a small cap, small based company into something that was larger. And one other real challenge that we had is such a large percentage of our overall sales come from Southern California or California specifically, and really looking at taking a company that's built a tremendous following regionally to try to see if you can go more uh, domestically wide in the United States and then ultimately globally. Yes. Well, you joined in 2019, just ahead of a wild period. I don't know where people wearing hats. Uh, What was the experience during the pandemic for you guys? Well, I think at first it was complete shock. Nobody, there's no playbook for how to manage a company through a pandemic. There's no playbook for what happens when 75 to 80% of your sales just go away. Uh, What do you do? How do you survive? Can you survive? Where's the revenue coming from? So I think overall there was a genuine shock, if I'm going to be very honest with you. And then there was sort of a settling of the foundation and a little bit of belief that we can do this with some light at the end of the tunnel, a real focus like everybody else on our e-commerce channel in order to um, try to you know, generate real revenue and real interest. So I would say you know, that became a real focal point for us. Our next focal point came in looking at our wholesale partners that were really struggling and saying, how are there ways that we can help them? Because we felt a responsibility to help them get through it as well. And whether that was extending our terms to them or higher levels of discount, that was something that was really important to us. And then I think the third piece overall was just understanding what are the categories that are most impacted by COVID. And, you know, naturally we found two Two really interesting sort of tidbits that I think helped us to survive uh, the pandemic. One was, obviously, we very quickly started building masks and other safety equipment. And that was a godsend for us for the first 12 months because we had lots of excess fabric and we needed to find something to do with it. So we were innovative and we did that very, very well. We also donated a lot of that uh, equipment, masks and other to fire department, police departments to become a larger part of the community, which we found was quite self-fulfilling and important for our brand. And the second thing we found out was, you know, as people moved to digital and more and more people were working from home, they actually wanted to cover their heads because they didn't want to always have to get their hair ready for meetings. So hats actually did pretty well uh, during the pandemic. Look, 
It wasn't a fantastic blowout year for us by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a year in which we found a way to survive. We got smaller, leaner. We had to get more agile. And to be honest, the largest issue of the pandemic for us was really what happened afterwards, which was really managing a very, very broken supply chain. Yes. Well, tell me about how you were able to even pull off masks and some of the things that you did do during the pandemic. Are you have Is your production on site or are you more like vertically integrated to some extent? So not really. I would say almost 95% of everything we do is offshore between Latin America and Asia. About 5% is domestic. But I do think we're agile. We have domestic screen printers and we do have some local cut and sew partners out of Los Angeles. And we have Asian partners that were as agile as could be. And they were also looking for ways to create revenue stream. So I think when partnering strategically with like-minded folks that are all trying to bring value in a very, very difficult time, uh, we were able to get this, this mask thing really, really going. And um Honestly, it was a critically important component for us in, 19, in 20, I guess. Yeah. Well, tell me about the state of the supply chain now. You've had to overhaul, rebuild. What happened? Honestly, I feel like the past four years have been extremely challenging for the brand because whilst there's been really good, healthy demand, our supply chain has been extremely challenged. And you could argue that only this year we've truly recovered from the disruption in supply chain. You think about coming out of a COVID year and demand coming back really, really quickly. Then we have the challenge of our warehouse no longer being large enough to stock enough inventory for the demand. Then you talk about not being able to ship your customer as effectively as possible. We then moved all of our inventory into third-party logistics. And that takes time. I mean, it takes six to eight months to really, really get good at it. And in between those two years, you unfortunately accumulate some excess inventory that ultimately you've got to get rid of. So this is what I would call a new baseline year for us. Demand is tough out there. The economy is hurting and soft goods isn't in great shape. So you really have to find a way to stand out. But also there's a lot of inventory out there and a lot of promotional activity. And that means you have to be agile and sort of reset your brand for what the future is going to look like, which hopefully 24 and 25, the customer starts to recover. Our inventory is going to be in a much healthier shape. And frankly, we'll be in third-party logistics, allowing us to ship and service our retailers much more efficiently. You are setting yourself up for success. To get rid of some of that excess inventory, was discounting happening? And what's your take on discounting now from here on out? Look, it's challenging. I think if you look at the marketplace, the higher-end brands that are in luxury aren't being as impacted as much as the mid-premium or the lower-level brands. At the end of the day, if your average price point is somewhere between 60 and $150, you are appealing to a specific type of customer who's being impacted by inflation and the cost of gas and the cost of groceries. There's high degrees of sensitivity. What we find is customers are still spending money on experiences, but they're reducing their spend on discretionary products. So if I bought a fedora last year, do I need another fedora this year? So unfortunately, we are caught in the middle and being promotional, at least being smart with offering value to the customer is going to be very, very important for us. But we expect a challenging year. And I think our first half of our year will be okay relative to last year. Our back half of the year is very challenged based on this is when our products were being booked this time last year. And obviously the forecast this time last year were for a global recession. I'm not sure we're there yet, but we're definitely in the middle of a downturn. 
Yeah, we're all bracing ourselves. Has your attitude toward wholesale changed? You mentioned some of those partners that you were working with and trying to help during the pandemic. Are, do you still have those partners? Do you have more? Look, my attitude to wholesale hasn't changed. I mean, 99% of my career and probably 85% of all my revenues come from wholesale. So I have nothing but respect for our wholesale work. Uh, you have people who are real wholesale partners, and then you have wholesale that you ship to. You know, I think partners concur that they want to grow your brand and they want to do it responsibly. And during difficult times, that can be very, very hard. It's a shared responsibility, inventory, discount, shipping dates, cancellations, promotions, and so on. So we really want to try to monitor that. I mean, I think overall for Brixton, we're largely an underdistributed brand. We're pretty strong on the West Coast. And then we're not as strong as we should be in the East Coast and the Mid-Atlantic. So a lot of focus on potentially new partnerships uh, that can grow over time as we've repositioned the brand to have a wider lens. And we look to continue to double down on wholesale. It's critically important and, quite frankly, more important than ever as freight expenses and cost of acquisition continue to climb. It's really hard on direct-to-consumer to acquire customers um, at a reasonable enough rate that you can that you can uh, incur long-term profitability on that same customer. More traditional marketing. Uh, are you pulling back your spend or how would you describe where you are investing now? I think for us, first, you have to focus on where you want your spend to go. I think trying to activate our brand inside of communities, locally, and being a bigger fish in a smaller pond is really, really interesting to us and something that we're looking at those opportunities. It's very difficult to go up against the big guys and make enough noise where you just know they're either going to outspend you and outshow you. So I think when it comes to things like really interesting headwear stories, customization of product, appearing in the local community and attaching ourselves to music, which is at the foundation of our overall brand, is going to be really important and an opportunity for us to win. That's really smart. I know you've also, um, you've collaborated with Coca-Cola recently. Are collaborations becoming a bigger part of your, your marketing strategy? I think collaborations are becoming a more strategic part. In other words, yeah. we see ourselves as a mid-premium Americana brand that's led by headwear, but this Brixton way of life that is so rooted in music and Americana. So we look for traditional Americana brands that help to reinforce the equity in our brand and hopefully try to expand in sort of a like-minded way as we speak to consumers. So Coca-Cola has been an incredible partner and we tied that collaboration uh, to music, which we're excited about, inspired by 1960s and 70s Coca-Cola delivery drivers. And we had a lot of success with that. But then um, other key brands that have been long-term partners with us, like Fender uh, on the music side, as well as as well as Coors on the beer side have almost become annual expectations for Brixton consumers to say what's new with Brixton and Fender or Brixton and Coors. And we get really excited about those collaborations because as we learn each other better, each collaboration becomes richer in storytelling and frankly, with, with really, really, really great product instead of just screen printed t-shirts and fleece, which we don't really think we need more of. Oh my gosh. Fender collab. That is so cool. Anyway, I have a father who, who lives for Fender. <laughs> um, but tell me about the appetite for tradition, traditional apparel uh, influenced by tradition right now. You hear so much about, you know, the rapid trend cycle and TikTok speeding that up and Gen Z trend, trend, trend. It, do you have an older customer or there's more demand than we would, than were the buzz is telling us? I think the brand ultimately designs 24 to 44 is our 
core consumer group. We have a third of all of our demand is younger than that. About 40% of our demand is right in that sort of 24 to 44 and the rest is a little bit older. And some of that skews a little bit older only because headwear customers tend to be a little bit older than apparel customers, um, as you would traditionally think. The way I like to think about trend is, you know, Brixton's supply chain is never going to be fast fashion and we don't want to try to be fast fashion. I think that's a really dangerous game to play. I don't think it's a game that we could win. But I also think about sustainability and these sustainability stories that are out there. Look, I think a third of all global waste is created by the apparel business. And I think the best thing that anybody could do is to buy really classic pieces that stand the test of time so that they're not constantly throwing away cheap product and it's landing up in landfills. So we are inspired by the past and both to live in the present. The goal is to really create a beautiful product at a mid-price to up a premium mid-price value for you, something that you could have in your closet forever and pull out for those special occasions. And we think that ultimately that's where we can continue to win. And we also think that's the best thing that we can do for the planet because that way you're not proliferating and throwing stuff away that you're never going to wear again. Yes. I know you've got a, I don't know, a menu item on sustainability. That's a big focus of the brand. Yeah. Is your customer demanding more information or, or what's the the level that you're sharing there? I think customers really like the story. I think where we find the right story, we think that's important. I think it's really important just to be genuine and credible. Look, Brixton wasn't founded on a set of sustainability initiatives like a Patagonia, for instance, where they do such a great job. It all starts there. And we love them. I mean, we love transparent supply chain like Everlane. They do a terrific job. But I think there's tidbits of those things that we can learn. In other words, we're a good corporate citizen. We want to be a good community member. We want to be a good corporate citizen. I think good citizenry means you have to be sustainable, respectable to the planet in some way, shape, or form. So for us, it's really first and foremost, design things that are sustainable and then find stories that can be really interesting. For instance, you know, our snapback headwear business is a big, big business. And most of our snapback brims are now built from recycled fishing nets that are left in the ocean and create terrible pollution. In fact, most pollution in the ocean is just plastic netting that's been cut off and left in the ocean. It's bad for marine life. It's bad for the ocean. We've now partnered with a company to pull those nets out, extrude them into polymers and actually help make headwear. We think that's a great story because we tell Southern California stories. Snapbacks are part of our DNA. Headwear is part of our DNA. And so if we can clean up the oceans as a connective tissue point to that, that makes sense to us. So I think as long as the stories are authentic and credible, all of our fedoras are made with cruelty-free wool. We think that's a really, really important initiative. We don't use animal pelts on any of our headwear. We think that's important. But we also think it's credible and it separates us from trying to scream sustainability versus being authentic and a good corporate citizen. You mentioned fedoras. You mentioned your snapbacks. You said 50% of the business is hats. Yeah. And is that is that ideal? I would say it's somewhere around 40%. If we took the five categories of headwear, nerd headwear, which are your beanies, snapbacks, which everybody knows, your baseball hats and so on. Um, also, your buckets would fit into that category. Then you've got your straw headwear as a very separate category. Then you have what we call the fedora category. And then the driver category, which is... You know, things like, uh, you know, fiddler hats and 
um, driver hats that people would wear. So five categories of business. We take them all very, very seriously, about 40% of the revenue. Okay, great. You've since expanded men's apparel, women's apparel. Uh, what else do we have? Well, overall, I think our focal point is, yes, we want to create connective tissue between the headwear customer and the apparel customer and get them to trade over and effectively have them look like they are done proper, which is a full head-to-toe look. In other words, the connective tissue between full outfitting instead of being exclusively a hat, a hat company or a headwear company, we want to say, look, headwear is a really, really difficult, bold statement to make. It's not for everybody. But if we show you what it looks like fully outfitted, maybe it becomes that much more consumable to the customer. So that's a real focal point. But then overall, in today's environment and where demand is, really focusing our SKUs down, narrowing our overall offering. Um, but we are very excited coming the back half of this year. We've got an incredible workwear-inspired piece of men's apparel that's coming that we're thrilled about. And we also have some great travel accessories that are really built to go with your hat. How do you carry your hat? What do you put your hat in? What are you doing on the weekend? And really solving this issue of somebody who has a hat and what do they do with it? It's it's this perennial problem. And so we decided to solve this problem in the back half of the year. And we're excited about the accessories that are coming for that. Ah. I'm hearing all these great stories about brands like getting in on, I mean, travel's hot right now. And I've, yes, that's a conundrum. How the hell do you travel with a hat? <laughs> well, it's that's really smart. interesting. I mean, although technology in headwear is not sexy, we have hats that are basically 100% packable. We are going to be introducing a fully convertible brim so that you can actually change your hat into three different looks. Most of our straw hats now come with UPF, which is special sun protection that everybody's looking for and and everybody should look for. Um, We offer protection plans in our headwear now. So really creating technology around your hats. How do you waterproof them? How are they convertible? How are they packable? What else can you do? We have adjustable brims on the inside of our hats because getting your hat to fit right is really, really difficult. So trying to take the friction out of the purchasing Uh, equation and helping to get somebody fit and happy the first time around is really important. Yes. Speaking of fit and technology online, your direct-to-consumer customers, do you have something like a um, a fit guide or I don't know, virtual try-on or something? Like, How do you gauge what, what your hat size is? We do have fit guides. We do walk you through how we expect you uh, to try to fit your hat, how to measure your forehead. And some customers love it and some customers just don't want to go through it. And they're like, well, look, I just know I'm a medium, so I'm getting a medium. Unfortunately, a lot of headwear comes in four to five sizes. And that means your return rates can be quite high. And in a challenge freight environment, that's really, really challenging to address. We do have adjustable bands on the inside that can open your hat a full three quarters of the size or reduce your headwear by a full three quarters of the size. And we have headwear inserts that if you can't get your hat to fit, we'll actually ship you one completely for free so that you can insert it to see if you can, if you can get the hat to fit completely properly. So we find that those are really good ways. And then we're constantly working on blogging and other great storytelling material to help you to fit your hat in the right way. Yes. Tell me about the team. How large is the company? I know you have a lot of editorial content online. I think organic or editorial content is really, really important. I wish we could do more. Um, I know with Ashley listening in, she's rolling her eyes right now going, I don't know how we get it. Look, 
we're a small, tight team and we need to continue to be efficient. And unfortunately, the speed in which consumers consume digital material is so fast that keeping up is, is difficult. And it requires sometimes a highly inefficient spend, whether it be Instagram, TikTok, YouTube or other. Uh, we do our best. Um, we want to be small, lean and agile. And when we do release content, we want the consumer to really be engaged. And so I think picking and choosing our spots, but realizing how important that is, is going to be very important in the future. As you're expanding and growing, are you guys fundraising? Are you Tell, tell me about who owns the company and what, what, what's going on there in terms of expansion. So the company is owned by Altamont Capital out of San Francisco. They've been an absolutely terrific partner for us. When we've grown, they've injected the liquidity into the organization to continue to make sure that we are in a good place. Um, we're constantly out there looking at liquidity and making sure that we have the liquidity. Liquidity is king right now because in a challenged environment, uh, you are often operating at a sort of a suboptimum level than you would want to be because you're prioritizing liquidity and sometimes your margins aren't where you need them to be. If you look at all the apparel brands that are currently reporting, even the ones that are doing well, they've had to take a step back in margin relative to where the consumer is and what their excess inventory levels look like. So look, you know, we're always out there looking for the right liquidity partners and making sure that we're well planned for the future and that there's going to be stability over the long run. Um, it's a volatile time right now and you just sort of have to hold on and hopefully this downtrend is going to be, you know, the next four to six months and we'll be coming out of it in a good way. One thing I will say is, I think, I don't think apparel is a laggard in the overall economic trend. I think in many respects, we feel the consumer softness uh, much, much before other industries. And so hopefully we started to see that really in February and March of this year. And so hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be through some of these challenges, certainly through the excess inventory challenge and make sure that from an ownership perspective, we can keep our balance sheets in good shape. Yes. Well, you talked about, I think you were talking about platforms when you were talking about you want to be a big fish, <laughs> maybe in a smaller pond. But when it comes to opening stores, um, first of all, how many do you have at this point? And, and where are you opening them? It, it, smaller markets, maybe? Or is that, a, is that a goal? So I think overall, we felt like the physical manifestation of our brand had to get out there. We saw a few things. One is trying to sell headway digitally can be very difficult because the conversion can be quite challenging. And then once somebody receives the hat, if they didn't get their right size, it's coming back to you. And often that can be a real challenge. So how do we create a real physical manifestation of our brand? And we wanted our shops to look like workshops. And we've also wanted a much cleaner, prettier, brighter opportunity for men and women to shop versus the old school feel of headwear, which is like elk horns and dark, and it smells like bourbon and tobacco, not a great <laughs> environment for women to shop in. So. Um, that was number one. So we saw an opportunity for a physical manifestation led by headwear, which we call our power wall. Number two was let's keep them close to home because operationally, you know, we're still a small company. And so the efficiency of planning for inventory in and out is really, really challenging when you go to other states. So we have seven doors in Southern California and we have one door in Japan, in Tokyo. And that's through our licensee, which is a great little door in one of the busiest circles, Shibura Circle in Japan. Um, our doors are all planned to be close to home so we can just service them well. They're all up the Southern California coast from Encinitas, California, to Oceanside, California, to Long Beach, to inland to Ontario. 
back into Newport Beach, and then all the way in Studio City in Los Angeles and San Luis Obispo. So I think the focus point has been two to three miles from the water, keeping with that Southern California headwear culture and making sure that it's close enough to home that we can operate them efficiently and plan for them the right way. Yes. You talked about kind of experiential. There's customization happening. What's happening in store? I'm, your full lifestyle is presented. Well, I think, you know, the holy grail of retail is people say retail experience, but it's a little bit cliche, right? I mean, you can't put a movie on and expect them to sit down and watch it. So I think we're constantly trying to find ways to solve for something called dwell time, right? How do they not make a U-turn in your store? You want them to spend time, whether they're looking at brand photographs or asking about the brand story or trying on hats or getting into the changing room. So I think this is the million dollar solve. And we've got 100,000 miles to go on solving for dwell time, which is, um, you know, the hat shopping experience takes time. It's a high service, high touch. People tend to find something on the wall. They put it on. They look at themselves in the mirror. They assume if it doesn't fit that you don't have a hat for them because they assume that all hats are one size fits all, which, of course, they're not in most environments. So we are always looking for stories to tell the store to get people to increase their dwell time, stay in our stores. And so whether it's on weekends, pouring them a beer or having a glass of champagne or coming to our workshops and having something fully customized as a one-off event for you or offering one-off created recycled headwear in our stores where you're the only person that will ever have this hat and we did something so special to it. But we tailor hats for people in our stores. We engrave them. We can change out your hat band. We can burn the hat. We can wax the hat. We can waterproof it, stiffen it. I mean, the whole experience is there. And we want you to stay and enjoy our store and learn more about our about our brand while you're waiting for this incredible one-off hat. So cool. Well, you mentioned the uh, Japan store in Japan. Did I read that you have a presence in 30 countries? And this is all through licensees or how is this happening? And I would think you'd be playing up this all-American brand, Southern California. It's kind of a novelty <laughs> outside of the States. Tell me what's happening beyond the States. Yeah, I think, look, when we're healthy in the United States, we're healthy everywhere else. So if the brand is under pressure in the US, the brand's going to be under pressure everywhere. And you know, unfortunately, in this kind of a macroeconomic environment, everywhere is tough. Having said that, we have offices in Australia and our Australian, actually our Australian subsidiary is probably doing the best out of everybody. They're doing great work led by an incredible uh, general manager out there. We have offices in Montreal and Canada. You know, our little sister, they do really, really well. We're excited and we get to touch Canada the most. Naturally, we think about it as part of North America. And so that's really good. And then we have offices in Amsterdam as well. And by and large, the way to think about our global business, probably 75% of our global business is our own sales team, our own headquarters globally uh, in those 30 different countries. And then a small percentage of those are either a licensee or an outside distributor sales force that ultimately uh, we service. Okay, that makes sense. So gosh, this year, you're you're four years in. <laughs> Uh, we're bracing ourselves. More stores, more. How? How? What change can we expect, or growth, or um, kind of just continue to take off with this new, new brand, new, new focus that you've established? I think this year is really going to be a year about focus. Uh, as cliche as it sounds, like getting back to the basics, reducing our overall skew load, really focusing our marketing engine on what we think is working. 
and unfortunately reducing risk exposure everywhere so that we can get through this really, really bumpy phase. <clears throat> I think of it a little bit like when you see your car is running low on gasoline, you reduce the speed, you drive more carefully, you try to stay at one particular speed, you pick your lane until you can find the next gas station. So we're not, not risk averse. We've got to focus on agility. But I think we need to be really smart right now. It's very challenging out there. Like I tell everybody, you know, we're not mining for nuggets right now. I think we really have to just stay the course, reduce our overall expenses and stay focused on our best customers. Yeah. Great lifetime value, making sure we look after our best customers and where we are looking or fishing for new customers that we try to do it more efficiently. What can you tell me about the loyalty of your customer? We all know the importance of, yes, it's cheaper to retain customers than it is to acquire them. They're important. Absolutely. Um, look, we find that headwear customers are very loyal, more loyal than apparel customers. They find a hat that fits them or they find a style that they like. They tend to come back. If you think about lifetime value and you timestamp it over 24 months, the average Brixton customer is going to come back three to four times over a two-year period. So we're trying to get that to three to four times per year. But at the end of the day, if you also think about it, you need less hats. That's just a fact. Um, but we we are really trying to focus people into if you bought a fedora from us, then in the winter, come back and buy a knit beanie. In the summer, get a fun snapback. If you're going paddleboarding, let's get you into a great piece of straw that floats on the water and protects you from the sun. So I think it's just what we call that cohort, that connective tissue between how do you get that lifetime customer to come back more than two or three times a year. That's really important. Of course, every time they come back, that particular activity is more profitable because the marketing that you spend to get them to come back is often significantly less than fishing at the top of the funnel and looking to get a new customer in. And, you know, at the end of the day, awareness is the most expensive thing to build. So you're always looking for effective ways to build awareness. And one of the things we think we can do is grow our wholesale footprint in order so more people in the United States actually know what Brixton is. When you were talking about cutting back, where are you able to streamline right now? I think in these environments, there's really only two or three places you can look. One is the first, you look at the size of your team and you say, are we being as efficient as possible relative to the size of our overall revenue? Uh, we've already done that. We've right-sized our workforce. The next place that you go to is obviously your marketing engine and you say, are we overspending in certain areas and can we afford to spend in certain areas? And you make trade-offs and a lot of the time it is spending less but it's also reallocating relative to where you want to focus and where you think your most profitable activity is ultimately going to be. And then I think lastly, it's just an issue of skew, right? Which is so much of your spend is attached to how much you make. You've got to reduce the amount you make because every time you create a skew, you set off this domino journey in how to spend labor against that skew, taking it to market, salesman samples, showing it to people, getting it sold in, closing it out. So, you know, skews are at the center of every cost that a brand has. Oh my gosh. I think probably industry-wide, we can probably expect <laughs> less newness for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody is going to focus on having newness, but less choice count for sure. 
Well, hey, I have to ask as we wrap it up. Are you a fedora guy? Are you, you're not wearing a hat today? <laughs> no, I'm not. You can see behind me. Unfortunately, this isn't on camera. Uh, yeah, I love fedoras. I am a straw hat guy in the summer, pretty much. But I'm a driver guy. Like I wear little driver hats a lot. And then everyone's a hat person here. It's almost a prerequisite at Brixton. So if you had to walk around the office, you'd see uh, everybody's different vibe. But also because I have the ponytail uh, back, it, it limits what I can wear and when I can wear it, depending on what I do with my hair. So now I'm starting to uh, now I'm starting to share some of my vanity issues with you, but uh, yes, I am a fedora guy. I'm a hat guy for sure. And I love what we make. Yes, I do too. And I was shocked to hear that you were saying people were buying hats to wear on Zoom. If I wear a hat on Zoom, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so unprofessional. <laughs> well, there's a professional. There's a nice hat. There's there a nice some nice hat. good stuff for you, Joel. You just let us know. We'll make you look professional on Zoom for sure. <laughs> nice. I need to step it up with my hat selection, not my beat up St. Louis Cardinals cap. <laughs> oh my gosh. Brixton. Anyway, thank you so much, Rap for being here. This was so fun. Thank you. I enjoyed it thoroughly. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the Glossy Podcast. See you next week.